HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, Visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. Yes, it's another episode of What Doesn't Kill Ya? Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and I really wanted my opening theme song today to be kind of a mashup of the Twilight Zone and the Jetsons, because we're talking about the future of food. This is part two of my series on innovations in food and food technology, and my guest today is Dr. Hod Lipson, a professor of engineering at Cornell University in Ithaca, and a co-author of the recent book, Fabricated, the New World of 3D Printing. His work on self-aware and self-replicating robots, food printing, and bioprinting has received widespread media coverage, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, Times, CNN, the National Public Radio, and yes, Heritage Radio Network. Lipson has co-authored over 200 technical papers and speaks frequently at high-profile venues such as the TED Talks and the U.S. National Academies. He directs the Creative Machines Lab, which pioneers new ways to make machines that create and machines that are creative. Now, if that's not scary enough for you people, <laughs> Dr. Lipson, you're scaring the crap out of me. I don't know. <laughs> Welcome to the program. Thanks for joining me today. Good, Good to be, be here. here. I really appreciate it. So tell us about, um, well, let's, let's talk, obviously, what we want to talk about here at Heritage Radio Network is food and specifically 3D food printing. So um, give us a thumbnail of how you got involved in that and, and what does that technology mean? Well, I think uh, uh, first step is just to explain a little bit of, of what 3D printing is. Uh, it's a technology that uh, has uh, been around for 30 years, but in the last couple of years has sort of taken off, and, and many people have heard of it. It's a process that prints three-dimensional objects. So uh, it lays down material, basically layer by layer, according to a digital blueprint, and stacks material layer upon layer until you have a three-dimensional object. So you're not printing a picture of a cup. You're printing a, a real uh, uh, coffee cup that you can uh, drink out of. So, so it's a 
process for making three-dimensional objects. So that that uh, technology has been around for a while, and uh, in the last uh, couple of years, it's taking off in a big way. Now, uh, aerospace companies are making uh, aircraft parts, uh, printing in metal, uh, and you see medical applications and so forth. So our background in this area, we've uh, been developing the technology, and about a decade ago, we created a uh, open source, an open source system uh, that uh, we were sort of getting tired of the these expensive big printers that uh, were proprietary and locked down. So we created an open source system called Fab at Home, and we released it. And uh, uh, we were thinking that a lot of people would start uh, printing robots and things like that, which we were interested in. But what happened is that people started printing other things. And the first thing that uh, they did was to print chocolate. So, so that's uh, that's how it got started, and uh, the rest is history. Uh, I, I'm sorry, but I, I just don't understand how it works. So, what happens? I mean, how do you print chocolate? How do you make? I understand you can ext- make it make it into a form, but how does it? How does this differ from regular manufacturing? That's what I don't get. So, so this this is true for three D printing as, uh, in metal, in plastic, in, in food. Uh, the process is very automatic. So you sort of load a, a design file. It starts in the computer. There's a three-dimensional design file that tells the, the, the printer where to put material. And then the printer moves around with a printhead and deposits material at the lo- locations uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it needs to. So gradually it builds up an object from the ground up by stacking layers upon layers. So uh, in the same way that you would uh, print in plastic, if you can imagine, by stacking lots and lots of layers of plastic into three-dimensional objects, you can imagine a printhead depositing molten chocolate, let's say, uh, creating a sort of a shape on a plate and then moving up a tenth of a millimeter, putting another layer, and then putting another layer and stacking layers upon layer. But each layer could be slightly different, so so you you get a uh, you know any arbitrary three dimensional shape right but you would i mean you would start in in your print cart in your ink cartridge as it were i mean i'm still unfortunately locked into the 20th century idea of printing but the ink cartridge as it were would be filled with molten chocolate but you wouldn't be able to mix chocolate you wouldn't be able to say um, 3D print, uh, you know, multiple, um, you wouldn't be able to put the ingredients together for chocolate and then create the object. That's where, that's where it gets interesting. So if you only have a, a one print head mm-hmm. uh, that prints only in chocolate, let's say, then it's true. You only can print in chocolate, and the only shape, only control you have is over the shape, all right? But the the, the consistency will be will be all uh, the same. And and by the way, a lot of people, a lot of chocolatiers, that's all they do. They play around with the shape of the chocolate. They, they figure out what to put in, and the shape the shape is itself is, is pretty interesting. But if you have a printhead that has multiple nozzles, yeah. uh, imagine a uh, your inkjet printer at home can print in three primary colors. So you can imagine a printhead that has, let's say, three types of chocolate or other ingredients, and it mixes them and creates all kinds of interesting patterns, again, all controlled by the computer. Well, what I've read is that um, it turns out that sweets, candies, and chocolates seem to be the things that succeed the best in 3D printing. Um, and then, But I, I guess I wanted to sort of go farther than that and talk a little bit about what the other possibilities are. And then I, so I downloaded this whole list of, of sort of points and questions that, um, that I, you know, derived from some of the reading that I did. And, mm-hmm. and, and so you could 
say you wanted to 3D print um, something like, um, I don't know, meat. <laughs> Could you load in uh, like protein, a protein substitute, uh, you know, something that mimics collagen, something that, I mean, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, you, yeah. Is that, po- yeah. would that be possible? Is this the future? I think I think it is the future, and, and let me let me explain a little bit. So, so the, you you're very uh, accurate in pointing out that uh, most of the work to date has been in confectionery printing, so chocolate, candy, things things like that. The reason is, I think, um, first, it's a sort of practical issue. These materials are more easily printed, so they're sort of uh, sure. easy to transform them into inks, and also people are more accepting of uh, trying out new kinds of candies. Sort of, uh, it's a it's a sort of from a from a business point of view. It's a lower hanging fruit, and and in fact, if you look at uh, the the handful of consumer three D printers that are out there, they're all in the confectionery area. Uh huh. So so that's a sort of a practical business uh, kind of uh, constraint. But in pra- in practice, you could conceivably print any with any processed food, so any material that you can push through a syringe, or through a or you can turn into a powder or gel or liquid. Right. You could print. You can turn it into an ink and print with it. So, um, yes, you could print uh, with uh, ground beef. I, uh, I, 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 you know what? Nobody's done that, but I can't see. That's a good idea. We should try it out. But you would start uh, with the ground beef. In other words, right, you can't right. eliminate the cow yet. You have to. <laughs> well, so, so I mean, so, I know so, they're growing meat in test tubes, and and that's sort of where I was trying to go with this. Yeah. It's like, how much of this is going to replace actual foods? So I um so you could uh, there are people working on synthetic meat yeah uh, and that would be sort of uh, uh, you know it it depends on the form factor of that meat if you need to grind it to turn it into uh, ground meat that you can uh, deposit that that's fine so that it will work so if you look at a hamburger for example you can print the hamburger you can print the bun right you can print the ketchup but you can't print the lettuce and the onion all right so so there's uh, the tomato so. So it's not a, a technology that's going to replace everything. It's it's a sort of uh, uh, I I see it as sort of the ultimate kitchen appliance that allows you to do a lot more than you can do with conventional appliances. But it definitely does not replace all forms of food. It just allows you to do more with uh, fewer ingredients. Interesting. So um, one of the things that um, because you know we were talking about food components. So you're saying that that it's still in the future that they would take like you know a one print one print cartridge one ink cartridge would have protein one would have carbohydrates one would have fats you're you're not ready at the point there to um say make ice cream or that's right i the the, the way i see this developing let's say in the near future in the next decade would be that uh, you would have an appliance like that at, in your kitchen and you would uh it this appliance would accept maybe a dozen different cartridges uh-huh and uh of sort of frozen material and 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 by the way it doesn't have to be a, you know frankenstein goop it can be you know, uh, it can be organic pesto if you know if that's what you want. So, so it's really whatever whatever uh, you know companies would would generate in this form factor would go into the printer, and then you would download a recipe, a digital recipe again, the recipe that contains both the shape and the cooking instructions, because this machine would cook it in line and would sort of assemble the food for you, and uh, and it would work for for sort of. Uh, Processed foods, uh, not for, uh, again, a steak and, and a salad, but uh, but for many other things. 
Um, well, that leads me to the next question, which is to talk a little bit about custom nutrition, because that was one of the things that really caught my eye about this. I mean, assuming, say you're diabetic um, or you have some other food um, sensitivities, and this exactly. would be a device with which you could um, calibrate how much you know sugar or carbohydrate or whatever it is that you can tolerate and then pre- produce food that would cater to those um, individual nutritional that's, needs. Is that's that right. something that, you see happening? Absolutely. So that's actually one thing that, uh, you know, when we first printed our, you know, first uh, uh, cookie and chocolate and so forth, it was more of a frivolous activity. As I, as I said, you know, we were engaged in printing robots and doing serious engineering, and this was sort of on the side. But uh, very quickly we realized that, first of all, there's a lot of interest in this uh, technology and what it could do, but also that it has a lot – it potentially – combines cooking with information technology in a new way. So one application of that is, of course, uh, printing uh, based on biometrics. So, And we, we actually open our book with this sort of a, a scene depicting a future uh, day uh, in your life when you wake up, and based on your biometrics from that night coming from your watch or, or whatever – your your breakfast with eggs and muffin and and whatever is printed that has exactly the right level of calcium, sugar, uh, you know, what, whatever ingredients, nutrients you need doesn't have the things you don't need, uh, and uh, so forth. And, and it's really um, the sky's the limit. Once you put this kind of cooking under the control of a computer that is connected to all these biometrics and the latest information, uh, there's just so many things that, that could be done that... Uh, it's mind-boggling to me. So theoretically, Dr. Lipson, we could be engineering our own like diet plan. Say you needed to lose five pounds. Absolutely. Calibrate and, that into your machine and then say, okay, feed me that stuff. Uh, yeah, you can say factor. You know, this is what I want to do. Factor that in into into my 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 breakfast, and it will be factored in 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 whatever way. Again, that is not just a a, a static program. But it will be based on your biometrics. Uh, so, so, so it would be customized and individualized, and uh, you could also uh, imagine that these things adapt over time. So, so people can share these recipes. Can can uh, it's not just a fixed recipe that's in a book, and and uh, it's one size fits all. Right, right. Now, one of the things I mean, I, I recently I interviewed an author named Catherine Keene. I think her name was. Um, <clears throat> she just published a book called Vitamania, and. The premise of the book was, A, we've been sold this incredible bill of goods through vitamins and supplements. But the main tenet of the book was that whole foods, as we consume them now, like lettuce or meat or dairy or whatever, there are nutritional components associated with those products that still haven't really been discovered or analyzed appropriately. So how can we know that um, if, say, we get to the point where we're just – you know, adding in liquids and powders and various things, you know, say if we were traveling in space or something like that for a long period of time, like how would you know you were really getting everything that you should be getting that you get from Whole Foods, but which we still don't really understand fully how they work in, you know, tandem, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So, so I don't know about space, but, but in terms of uh, my kitchen, uh, th- then uh, again, the, the, th- the material that you, the, you put into the printer can be, uh, you know, can be uh, lettuce, can be, uh, you know, can be ground up broccoli, can be whatever. It doesn't have to be uh, chemicals and sort of food science type things. It could be could be natural things. Like I said, you want to put organic pesto, you can do that. And uh, 
and uh, so you, so you do, you're not working around conventional food. It's not a replacement. It's just a different way of using them uh, in a way that I think allows you to access a, a much larger variety of things out of a small set of uh, basic uh, uh, ingredients. Right. And also for people who don't cook, obviously this is the magic bullet. I mean, everybody's going to cook at home if all they have to do is go buy, you know, exactly. the stuff. Exactly. And then I that's- think I think it, it sort of bridges. Uh, there's a gap right now. Either you, you, either you cook alone, you cook yourself, but then you need to know how to cook and you need to understand and you need to put in the time. Uh, or... You buy things ready made, and you get uh, you you have a limited variety because not everything is available, and you don't exactly know what's in there. With with this food printing, it's sort of bridge. It's it's the best of both worlds. You'll know exactly what goes in there. You're in control. You're in software control even. So it's even more control than before, and you can make everything fresh on the spot. Again, it doesn't, re- and you don't need to understand anything about uh, cooking, which for many people that's a good thing. So. Again, it's not a replacement. I, I'm not. I, I want to make clear that uh, I'm not saying this is a replacement to conventional cooking. Conventional cooking is going away, is, or nor is it a con- uh, replacement from conventional food. But it's a new way uh, to look at food and, and opens up new possibilities. Well, what I see is like, for instance, I can imagine this kind of technology being really popular in the fast food industry, for example, where everything is completely standardized, and that would eliminate, you know, millions of jobs. <laughs> right? Well, I, I actually I mean, think can... it's the other way around. It's the oh, really? other way around. Well, this first of all, this thing, this machine is anything but fast. All right, so so this is uh, this is a slow, very slow uh, printing. This is something you sort of you uh, dial in from your phone, from your app. You decide what you want to print, and you do it a couple of hours in advance. And when you get home, it's there. So this is not a fast. This is not mass production. This is all about customized, optimized for you, uh, one-off food production. So it's it's sort of the opposite of mass production. And the same thing happened with 3D printing in conventional uh, manufacturing. Initially, people said 3D printing is a very slow technology. It's never going to compete with mass production. But what, what happened in the last couple of years, people realized it's not about mass production. This is about making optimized, customized parts for relatively small batch production like aircrafts and, and medical. And it's the same thing here. This is about personalized, optimized, customized food. Very interesting. Yeah, I totally get that point, actually, because I can see, like, if you're, you know, only creating, you know, 1,500 of a certain type of widget, um, you can't actually put that on a production line. Exactly. It's too small exactly. a production run. So, exactly. um, But let's talk a little bit about safety, food safety and, you know, hazard analysis and critical control points. I mean, like, how do you maintain food safety? Like, how do you keep your machine clean? Uh, you know, that's just the first thing that comes to my mind. Right, right. That, that's, a, that's a great question. We certainly haven't uh, uh, thought about it too much in the, in the lab. That's a sort of a, a, a consumer scale question um, but absolutely the mo- so that's true for any any production system that you have uh, at home uh, and uh, you know who regulates it you can only sort of regulate the materials that go into the printer so I can imagine the print cartridges would have to conform to some standard and I can imagine the printer itself like any other appliance there's FDA regulation about what materials you use what materials come in contact with the food is it uh, easy to clean and does it have pores that, that trap bacteria these are all sort of FDA type questions but uh, but it is a sort of uh, f- new frontier for sure 
Well, now, one of the things that I read, and I, I won't dwell on this for long, but there was sort of the next um, phase is kind of 4D printing, and that in that um, that seemed to indicate sort of either uh, another like aspect of this in the sense of either adding time or heat or you know some other what is that what would that do like could you conceivably heat all your components to the point where any bacteria is vaporized just to go back to the original question there uh yeah so so 4d printing in in uh, is sort of a loose term to describe uh phenomena that happen after the printing has happened so like you said time heat things that that change the shape and with food this is a very basic uh process we call it cooking so after you mix the ingredients uh you want something to happen uh, often and and that's uh, you can definitely uh, imagine a printer that not only puts the ingredients in the right place and then you pull it out and put it in the oven but it also does what we call inline cooking so it, with a laser or with a small microwave or something like that it actually cooks the the food as it is being printed and that gives you an, yet another level of control softer control to make more interesting things and uh, you're very right. It can solve some of the, uh, you know, uh, the. Uh, it can be used to sterilize uh, and, and the the plate as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, by the way, so for some reason, your voice is sort of fading in and out a little bit. Are you noticing that on your end? Um, I'm uh, I'm told it's going to be okay. Okay. So. Okay. Cool. Um, okay. Very good. Um, so let's. I have one more question, then we're going to take a short break. But um, this has obviously applications for the elderly in terms of nutrition. Um, it has applicate. What about for schools or other institutions? What would they use it as a model or? Do you see it? I mean, you said it was like sort of more of a one-on-one consumer situation, but does it have applications in larger institutional settings? Um, I think if 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 there's an advantage to having customized uh, production, then there's an advantage. Uh, so I, I if again if you're going to print the the same thing for everybody in the school, there's no point. Uh, this is not an efficient way of doing it. But if you want to make something customized and so forth, but there's an interesting, there's another angle to uh, to this, and that's the educational uh, angle. Uh, you know, I've been uh, most of my work is in robotics, and we've been trying to get kids interested in robotics and math and science. And, and you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I can tell you that when I brought a food printer into my son's second grade class, you know, kids who couldn't care less about math, science, anything suddenly got you know, we were printing a cookie and they suddenly got interested. And uh, and uh, they said, okay, what if, how many cookies can you print from one batch of this? And what if we change the shape? And so there is an enormously, there's a huge potential here, I think, for, for bringing science, uh, education, uh, technology, and so forth using cooking. Uh, and this, uh, it's sort of bridge, it's, it's a new opportunity there. Well, I mean, I think that's happening to a large extent in many school systems as it is because we have more and more emphasis on <clears throat> teaching kids, you know, about better nutrition through growing gardens and having a lot of hands-on experience with food preparation, at least, you know, in the lower grades. I know they did that a lot when my daughter was in elementary school uh, to medium success, I would say. I think it depends on, you know, whether or not kids are exposed to nice foods on a regular basis or whether they only know about, you know, fast foods and, and packaged foods. And, and mm-hmm. that makes it uh, more of sort of like a wow moment for them. Um, anyway, we should take a short break and we'll be right back with Dr. Hod Lipson from Cornell University. We have some more um, sort of macro questions to ask about the meaning of these new technologies for printing food. So stay tuned. 
listening to Room Room by Ball Shoot. Ball Shoot Fire. The International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at InternationalCulinaryCenter.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. <laughs> We're talking about 3D printing for food with Dr. Hod Lipson on the phone from Cornell University. Um, so, Dr. Lipson, how much further can this technology go? What, what do you see as kind of the end result here um, as, it, as the technology goes through the next iterations of figuring out how to take, um, you know, more base ingredients and create more um, space-age type foods? Or do you even yeah, see that happening? Yeah, I, I think, I think we're, we're really at the, at the very beginning of this technology. This is sort of uh, just coming out of labs, and the printers out there right now are not, uh, you know, they can print with one material and the very kind of uh, just, just touching the tip of the iceberg of what could be possible. So if, uh, if you look a little bit uh, down the road, you'll see the possibility of working again with multiple materials, so uh, mixing multiple ingredients. Uh, the other thing is uh, exciting, very exciting to me is this idea of inline cooking. So the idea that the printer doesn't just mix the ingredients and puts them in the right place, but also cooks them in uh, under software control. So a lot of possibilities there. The connection to, to uh, nutrition and biometrics is, is uh, just unfolding as, as biometrics are getting better. And uh, one of the things that, that I'm really excited about um, is this idea that uh, that in the future you can imagine a sort of social networking around food uh, where people can actually share recipes. So I can post a digital recipe and somebody – and I can share a meal with somebody on the other side of the planet. If they have the same printer, the same ingredients, they, the printer could make half the pie for me and half the pie for them. So – there's a, there, or or that uh, that people begin to to create these digital recipes and share them and and modify them and create variations very much like they make music. Uh, people share music and and other things. So, um, so right now it's it's sort of difficult to transfer recipes. It's it's uh, we're still living in the old world when it comes to food. We have to sort of uh, do it uh, manually and, and, it, and we read from books and and watch movies. But when these printers will will well, if if they become uh, if they proliferate, then then will there'll be this kind of uh, interesting, I think, proliferation of new kinds of food that we can't even imagine today. So it's not it's not so much about how can you use a printer to make a uh, chocolate chip cookie that you can buy right now in the supermarket. The question is, what can you make with this machine that you couldn't make any other way? And that's still the the frontier that we have to uh, explore. Yeah. Well, that's I, that's definitely what I'm wondering. What you know, like, are we going to create new foods 
like using gels and powders and, and sort of, you know, nutrients that are broken down into their most basic components. And then will we create recipes for, you know, a turkey meatball sub that's entirely made of some sort of, you know, synth- synthetic materials? I, you, you can't know. even imagine what people will make with this. And that's, that's the exciting part. That is the exciting part. And it won't even be necessarily a sub. I mean, why stick to that shape when you can make any shape you want? Why stick to a meatball if you can make meat cubes or whatever you know, whatever you want. I mean, you can see that happening again in conventional manufacturing with 3D printing. This, uh, there's, there's inventions left and right. People are making with this things that cannot be made any other way. And, and the same thing will happen with food. And, and this, is, this is, to me, the most exciting part. And I can't uh, wait to see these, uh, this technology um, you know, take off. Yeah, well, you, I mean, you got, you're a futurist, and uh, I am a Luddite, and so I frankly see all of this with a very healthy degree of, of concern and skepticism, and that, and that leads me to my next question, which is, all of this stuff, it sounds almost like a post-apocalyptic world that uh, is being planned, and when you said something about, you know, sharing the same meal with somebody across the planet, I like that idea, but I don't, what, but what it also conjured up to me was a short story that I can't remember who wrote it but um but of everyone living in a cube you know in their own cubicle and doing everything in the cubicle and and their virtual world was so real that they didn't need to go outside anymore and it's you know it was all part of the post-apocalyptic um you know thing we maybe we all live underground and we share meals virtually with our 3d printers i mean is that do you think that's where we're headed with this is that is that sort of what you think about when you think about devising these kinds of machines I, th- I think, uh, you know, this is, it's very, you can ask the same question about social networking uh, in general and living with, with a phone. And, and uh, so uh, in, in many ways, yes, it creates isolation, but in other ways, you get to reach so many more people and you get exposed to so many more things, uh, not just your, 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 your close uh, neighbors and not just the, the foods, the, you know, the, the two dozen different foods you normally eat, but you be exposed to much more. So I think, I think there's definitely pros and cons, uh, absolutely, and uh, it sort of changes the landscape. It, it totally changes the landscape. <laughs> it's just like um, I think it's so cool that you can think that far ahead. I can't think past next week, and even then, is kind of a challenge. Um, but let me ask you this: Who is funding research into this now? Like, I'm I'm interested in who. Uh, you know, what companies, not specifically 3D printing, because I see that has applications across many industries, but like in terms of the food printing technology, do you see uh, large um, grants coming in from some of the bigger food production companies like Nestle, for instance, or General Mills or, you know, any of those big players? Well, you know, at, at this point, it's uh, it's all of these, all the companies are, many companies are sort of interested in this technology. They're interested in understanding whether it's disruptive or not. Uh, they're not quite sure if it's a, uh, if it's really a, uh, if it's a game changer, if it's a fad that's going to go away, if it's a bread machine, or it's a, uh, or it's really a game changer. So, so I think, uh, so right now they're all sort of. Uh, Interested, uh, you know, with with some with some caution, and and uh, it again it very it, it reminds me very much of the sort of early days of three D printing when we were uh, showing this technology and how we can make lots of different shapes and a lot of conventional injection molding manufacturers would would wonder whether this is a replacement 
for for conventional manufacturing. And the answer in the end was no, it's not a replacement. It can do different things. And I think the same thing will happen here. This is not a a new way to make uh, Doritos. This is a this is for making customized one-off things that are very special, and uh, it's it's a sort of it's a new market. At the same time, I could imagine it being really useful to a snack food producer like uh, somebody who make you know like the people who make Doritos or you know potato chips or anything like that because you could experiment with shapes and. Um, and with, you know, flavor components, flavor layering and stuff like that, and then transfer that to your conventional manufacturing processes. Do you the, see it as an R&D tool for them? Absolutely. So that, that is – there's a lot of things that you – so if you can start small, you can make a, a sort of a printer that is uh, not a general purpose, but it specializes, let's say, in making breakfast bars, right? Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a sort of uh, specialized in that. And uh, uh, that's a sort of a, a niche market that might make more sense. And it could feed back, like you say, data to the manufacturer about what people like, what combinations. They can start data mining uh, food production at home. And I think that's, again, that's another window uh, that uh, many companies right now don't know, don't have. They don't know how exactly you use their food, how much you use of it, what you make of it, when you eat it, and so forth. And this uh, a food printer uh, could could give access into that as well. So, uh, so absolutely, I see it as a sort of gradual process. Uh, my dream is to make sort of the ultimate printer that can make anything uh, with you know unconstrained. But I definitely see in the shorter terms, some of the larger companies might be interested in making more limited versions of these printers that specialize in something that they're known for. Right, right. Well, I, I, my last question for you was going to be about sort of who would ultimately own the rights to this technology. And I, and my again, in a sort of post-apocalyptic vision, I was thinking, well, what if, you know, Nestle or, um, you know, General Foods or any of the other really big players ended up kind of consolidating, like owning the rights to the machinery and, and, um, and then therefore sort of owning the right to food in a certain form convoluted thinking process that I'm very good at. Um, do you, <laughs> do you, but do you ever see that happening? I mean, do you see this technology becoming almost like, um, you know, a weapon in a way uh, where you could, if you were controlling that technology, you could control the um, food sources and, and how people accessed food. I don't think uh, anything uh, dramatic like that will happen in the long term for two reasons. One, some uh, at least some of the early work we did was uh, open source, so that sort of prevents anybody from from owning it. Um, but another issue is that uh, there are many technologies involved in this, and already uh, parts of these technologies are owned by different people, patented in different ways, and there's a lot. So it's a whole ecosystem. So it's very difficult. Uh, I would uh, imagine for any single company to own the entire ecosystem because because it's so complex, there's so many moving parts in it. And even if they did, this would be uh, only for a short while. So I'm not uh, not concerned. <laughs> no, yeah. Then the, then the the next machine will come out. Yeah, exactly. All <laughs> right. <laughs> Okay, well, let's. Um, I want to. Uh, we only have a few minutes left, but I want to know, Dr. Lipson, why aren't you building us a flying machine? I don't really care about 3D printing, and I, 
I'm sort of interested in robots, but they scare the bejesus out of me at the same time, especially ones that are self, uh, self-aware self and self-replicating, which is something I know you're working hard on up there in Cornell and soon to be bringing that tech to Columbia, as I understand. That's um, right. But where is my flying machine? I'm almost 60 years old. I want my flying machine. Make it look, happen for look me. Look above you. Look above you. Uh, I see the ceiling. <laughs> No, that's, we're working on it, and they're coming. <laughs> but it's got to be in my lifetime, dude. Because by the time I'm old and feeble and I can't walk around anymore, I want my little strap-on jetpack or, or my battery-powered insert that, like, flutters my arms and legs for me or something. Yeah. I think uh, food printing is a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us how we can learn more about Dr. Hod Lipson. And um, am I saying that right? Hod? Hod? Yes, yes, that's right. Either way, either way works. Uh, yeah. So if you if you uh, so uh, our book fabricated uh, has uh, a whole chapter devoted to food printing and some of our experiments and and what people how people react to it, and uh, uh, and if you're interested in, in uh, self-replicating robots, uh, just see our website at Cornell or Columbia, and you can learn more. And when you're moving to Columbia, you're coming down to New York this summer, right? That's right, July first. Do you have your home yet? Yep. Oh, they gave you housing probably, didn't they? That's right. You'll be right in my neighborhood. I'll yeah. be looking for you. We'll have to have a drink so you can tell me more about 3D printing of food because it's really, it's just such a, I mean, for somebody my age and in my, you know, with my kind of mindset, which is very much lodged in the past, this is just like so wild. I, I, it's, I'm still having a hard time wrapping my head around it. But I thank you so, so much for joining me today. My um, this was a lot of fun. I hope you'll come back when uh, more things happen. You know, as the, pro- as the technology progresses, I'd love to get an update from you. And um, thanks to my sponsor, the International Culinary Center, for um, their support for this station. And uh, folks, we're starting, uh, we're launching a Kickstarter tomorrow, if I'm not mistaken. Um, So please stay tuned for information about the Kickstarter. Virtually every single guest and every single person who listens to this radio station uh, should be, you know, kicking in at least five bucks to make this station a more vibrant um, and better fueled technology you know, better field technology. We're looking to build a new website, but we really need more than that. We need a new, we need more studios. We need more engineers. We could do so much more if the public would kick in. And with, uh, you know, every single guest we've ever had, which by now numbers in the tens of thousands, I would imagine six years of broadcasting. I mean, I myself have interviewed something like four or 500 people at this point. So, you know, Give it up, folks. Five bucks ahead, and we can really make something happen here. We're the only station that provides the kind of information that, on a regular basis that you hear. And I myself, along with many of my co-hosts, often break stories that you'll hear about weeks, months, and years after the fact uh, in mainstream media. So give it up for us. Come on. We're doing a good job for you. We want to keep doing it. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 